My name is Dr. Bill Griffin, and this morning we'll talk about dental health for the least of these. It's a huge topic, and we'll just look at some of the various options to treat those who have needs that they can't afford to have met, both domestically and uh, internationally. And let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that we're able to... uh, to know you and to know your forgiveness, to know your peace, and to know fellowship with you, Lord. And we count these things as a blessing from you. And uh, I pray, Father, that you would, during this hour, give us insight as to how we can extend these privileges to others, how you can use us as your ambassadors to proclaim your great news of salvation. So bless our time together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, great, thank you. So for those of you on live stream, all the slides have been downloaded. You should have access to those, and you can probably keep up with me. I'll be skipping through some of them so we can pay more attention to others. And the topic of this talk, dental health for the least of these, in a sense it may be a little misleading because a lot of the people that we try to provide care for we're not able to help them establish health as much as we are to uh, get them out of pain. But if there's a site you've been going to, either domestically or internationally, repeatedly, sometimes you can uh, create some preventive opportunities for them to become healthy. But a lot of it is getting people out of pain, which can serve a tremendous benefit both temporally and eternally. So I've had the privilege of doing a lot of international trips over the years, and the best ones are with my wife, Linda, who was my first dental assistant about a million years ago, and she does still work with me on trips. And uh, also, in addition to international trips, I've also had the, uh, the... I also serve as the vice president for dental ministries with the Christian Medical and Dental Associations in Bristol, Tennessee, I spent a lot of years in private practice, and during that time I was involved with a Christian clinic in Yorktown, Virginia for about a decade, and and that was a great opportunity to see how some of the same things we do internationally can be used by the Lord right here in our own country as well. And my goal is about four mission trips a year. That's been curtailed by COVID, but I hope to get back into that pattern sometime very soon. So I don't have to talk a lot about the dental needs around the world. We, we know that either experientially or just theoretically that there are a lot of places that don't have access to dental care. The problem with dental decay, I've heard it said that that's the most prevalent disease around the world and very few people there to treat it. And it is especially difficult when children suffer with that and, and how painful that is both for the children and their parents to have to watch that. And that disease takes two forms primarily, you know this, dental decay and periodontal or gum disease. And both cause a lot of tooth loss, a lot of pain, problems with diet and things like that. And we know from statistics that those countries that have pretty high income, there's a dentist for for every 1,700 or so patients, and that's a manageable number. But as we move into countries with less income, the numbers become a whole lot less manageable. In middle-income countries, there's one dentist for about every 14,000 patients. And low-income countries have one dentist for every 152,000 people. And that dentist is not serving those people, obviously. Almost all of them go without, which is a a very unfortunate situation that, that God uses for his glory. So, no, I'm not grateful for the problems, but it's neat how God can use those things. 
And the reference in the title here, I know you're familiar with Matthew 25:40, talking about the sheep and the goats. And it says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And, and clearly, nobody becomes a sheep by helping others. But what this is getting across is, those that belong to Christ, these are the kinds of things they're going to do, motivated by the love of Christ, Christ that, has, that has saved them. Now, before we dig into possible international mission and domestic mission opportunities, I want to just very briefly address the fact that there has been some legitimate criticism regarding short-term mission trips over the years. There's a book, a rather famous one, called When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickert. Another called The Great Omission by Steve Saint. And and others that have raised some important issues regarding the legitimacy of these short-term trips. Things like... Is it just a waste of funds? Uh, Do you just create continued dependence on you such that the people never really rise above the problems that they have? Uh, Are you going there and ending up disrupting the economy by giving up free drugs or whatever it might be and putting the pharmacies out of business? Uh, Is there a, a lasting spiritual impact on these trips? And these are issues that I wish we had more time to address, and there are probably smarter people than me to address them. I will say that I still believe that short-term mission trips can be powerful for all involved, but I just want to hit one objection, and that is a very legitimate one, that international mission trips, or actually any kind of service to the poor, can create an attitude of condescension. In other words... I'm the provider, I go to a foreign country, and I give of my amazing skills to these unfortunate, inferior people, and the pride puffs up in me. And the people that I'm serving feel like they are less and less worthy, less and less important, and that becomes a roadblock to the gospel for them. And so we see how even something that can accomplish good things, good temporal purposes, can be spiritually destructive to both sides. And... I think at the heart of it, the biggest way of dealing with that potential pitfall is recognizing who we are in Christ. The Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, as it said, we're all equal at the foot of the cross And that realization can help prevent us from becoming puffed up for what God has enabled us to do for others. And if you've been on any trips, you've certainly seen the fact that we can learn things from those that we serve about contentment in the midst of trying circumstances, about the the power of faith in their lives that we Americans should be envious of. So it's certainly a two-way street, and and I, I don't think there's any... Uh, theological justification or practical benefit to that kind of pride that can develop if we think it's coming ultimately from us. Okay, let's dig in here. So these are the topics we'll be looking at today. First of all, I'll present 10 reasons that you might consider doing short-term mission trips. And then we'll talk about ready-made trips by Global Health Outreach, which is CMDA's missions organization. We'll look at mission trips with students, which I've really enjoyed over the years. We'll talk about remote third-world teaching trips. These are kind of crazy, but by the grace of God, they work. (laughs) And then we'll look at international gospel opportunities at home, and finally how mission trips can affect private practice, because a lot of people who do mission trips are also involved with private practice. 
And then I'll have some resources for you at the end. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, all the slides are online. And also the last slide I have for you here is the resources for the organizations that I'll, that I'll mention. So first of all, top ten reasons for short-term mission trips. First, anybody who's done trips could create their own top ten and there might very well be some overlap with mine. So there's nothing sacred about mine, but these are the ones that have hit me the hardest. And, and secondly, these are things I've either learned on the mission field or they're principles that I've seen illustrated on the mission field, but they can't stay on the mission field. Things that God shows us internationally, he wants us to take back and integrate them into our lives. So I'll give you my ten, and uh, if we have some time at the end, I'm happy to hear yours as well. So first of all, evangelistic opportunities on the mission field. Anybody that knows Christ wants everybody in the world to know Christ. And, and however God has blessed you in that regard, the, the knowledge that he accepts us completely because of Christ, the peace that can give us, the, the joy that comes even when circumstances aren't so hot, that you want others to know the, the power that is in the gospel. And so one of the greatest reasons, I think, why people serve internationally is so others can have that same peace and joy in Christ. And we see that Jesus follows a similar pattern, that quite often he deals with people's physical needs as well as his spiritual needs. And, and he heals a little faster than we can, but the principle is, is still the same. Secondly, evangelistic opportunities back home. And we'll talk a little more about this, but when you've been going on mission trips, that will create an opportunity to pe- speak to people back home, either staff or patients or whomever. They'll say, how was your last trip? And you decide how you'd like to respond. And that's like an open door to how you saw God at work during that trip. Number three, showing love to believers. And I have an embarrassing story to tell in this regard and how I learned this. My first mission trip ever was to Belize in 1998. And ever since I was in dental school and came to personal faith in Christ... I've always had a zeal to share the gospel, even when I wasn't quite sure what the gospel was. And, and so I had this vision of going on a mission trip, and I'd pull that bad tooth, and the patient would jump out of the chair and say, Wow, that was great. What must I do to be saved? I'm thinking, yes. And it turned out almost everybody I saw in Belize was already a Christian. Darn it, there's another one. And, and, and it's like the, the community was, was very strongly influenced by the gospel, but they needed dentistry. And I went home really bummed out, and that was almost my last trip ever. And then I started reading this thing called the Bible. And it says things like, show love to all men, what's the rest? Especially those of the household of faith. And as often as you do that, to these the least of my brethren, this you've done unto me. And so the Lord finally convinced me that it's okay to show love to Christians too. And so you guys are probably way ahead of me in that regard, but it took me a while to realize that God wants us to be a blessing to brothers and sisters in Christ and also to those who have not yet become Christians. I'm a slow learner, but that's what God showed me. So thank you, Lord, for Belize. (laughs) Okay, number four, increased appreciation for what you have. This is an item that I bet is on, would be on everybody's list of their top ten reasons for doing mission trips, that when you forego some of the... uh, enjoyments that you have during the course of a mission trip, you become more appreciative for those things. That's, that's a no-brainer. But there's a second step that I think God wants us to go through in this regard, and that is 
decreased dependence on what you have. So that when you go back home, you're not only more grateful for air conditioning or uh, family, whatever it might be, but that you more see your identity in Christ and you're able to say with Paul in Philippians, I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I think that's the two-step that God wants us to get to through mission trips. Number six, freedom from the Western pace of life. If you've been on a mission trip, you know that it's hard work. You're doing uh, difficult procedures at times all day long. But for me at least, at the end of the day, you have dinner, you sit down with people, you, you have great conversation, great fellowship. And I, generally speaking, I more enjoy that free time on a mission trip than I do at home when there are so many distractions, so many things that can compete for, for our attention. So I would say that freedom from the Western pace of life is a, a, an extra blessing that I didn't at first recognize that occurs on most mission trips. Number seven, teaching medical and dental students. And we'll talk more about this shortly, but we see the pattern in Scripture that as we teach others whatever we might know, that that can be passed on to others from 2 Timothy 2.2. And we'll, as I said, we'll get into that more shortly. Number eight, establishment of profound friendships. Who goes on a mission trip to make friends? Nobody. You're going to serve, right? But here's what happens. You're going to serve with others of like mind who want to put others ahead of themselves, who have that uh, gospel-born desire to be a blessing to others. And by the end of the week, you look left and right, and you've made some profound friendships. And, And that's one of the ways that God blesses us that might not be on our agenda as we sign up for that trip. And that's happened to me, certainly. Dr. Jim Carney, he and I have done a number of trips to Jamaica. He's become a wonderful friend, and it was primarily, well, actually, he led the second trip I ever went on after Belize. (laughs) This is kind of cool. We served together with a group called the Christian Nell Society, and he was scheduled to do a, a student trip to Jamaica with two other dentists, a group of about 20 students, And he sent us out an email. He said, guys, my other two dentists just dropped out on me. I need another dentist or I have to cancel the trip. And so I just said, okay, I'll go. I didn't want to see the trip canceled. And that was the beginning of a wonderful uh, relationship with Jim and also the opportunity to begin to serve students. So I thank those two dentists who canceled. (laughs) Number nine, greater appreciation for the universality of the church. What do I mean by that? In John chapter 17, shortly before Jesus gave his life for us, he prayed for his followers. He prayed for those that were following him then and those who would believe in him through their word. And who's that? That's us. We believe in Jesus through the word of those that follow Jesus. And he prays specifically for their unity. He says that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And then he says why he was praying for unity. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the unity, the the, the beautiful fellowship that we have as believers, as enjoyable as it is, it has another purpose besides our enjoyment, and that is to be a testimony to others that Jesus really is from the Father, that Jesus really is the Messiah. And I think it's so cool when you go to another country and you meet somebody you've never met before. They may even, uh, you may need a translator to talk to them. But there's this immediate uh, 
fellowship, this immediate unity that you enjoy with them because they, like you, are, are benefactors of God's grace. So we begin to see, as we go to other countries, that the gospel is indeed for all people, for all cultures, for, for all nations. It's universal. Number ten, the privilege of seeing God at work. Most of us can remember a time when it finally hit us that being right with God is not based on a collection of our best efforts. It's not based on attaining a certain level of morality. It's based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's God's work in Christ, not our work, that makes us right with our Creator. But the longer I walk with Christ, the more I realize that God's work is not just what made me right with Him, It's what keeps me with him. It's what keeps me going. It's what enables me to do whatever I do. So, more and more as we walk with Christ, my hope is that we'll think to ourselves not, well, what am I going to do? But what is God going to do? And that's not at the expense of planning, obviously. But we are more looking to see where God is going to be at work. And you become especially aware of that when you are, humanly speaking, more dependent on what he might do. In other words, mission trips get you into situations, whether it's equipment or transportation, whatever it is, where things are out of your control. And I certainly pray more on trips than I do otherwise. And so that helps us realize that it's not just our relationship with God that's based on his work, but it's our lives. It's our everyday call to to walk by faith in him. So that's my ten, and uh, you all are welcome to add to this list at some point in time. Uh, but I hope that'll at least uh, give you some food, food for thought. Let's now look at ready-made mission trips. There are organizations that put on trips where pretty much what you do is you pay the fee and they do most everything else for you. They seek to predict just about everything can, that can be predicted and make plans so that there are hopefully not too many surprises on the trips. And the organization that I'll feature now is Global Health Outreach, which is CMDA's missions organization. They were putting on... I guess I should say we, since we're a part of CMDA. We were putting on about 50 trips a year. All of those were medical, and about half of those had a dental component. And I've got just a short video to play for you from Dr. Trish Burgess, who's the head of Global Health Outreach. Ooh, that's loud. My name is Dr. Trish Burgess. encouraged us to do what we're good at for the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And I'd always had a heart for traveling and had wanted to do medical missions for a long time. I went on a global health outreach mission trip, and right at the start of that mission trip, I felt like this was my ministry, this was why I had been created, to do these teams for the Lord. So after that, I began tithing my time. And I would do about three weeks of mission work a year. One thing I really liked about mission work was evangelism. And it was initially something I thought I'd be really uncomfortable with. I had grown from this person who had never shared the gospel with a person in her life to someone who really enjoyed it and looked forward to it. And as I began being a team leader, I became more of a disciple in that I was teaching others how to evangelize. The reason I love GHO so much is that 
we're able to get into countries and strategic areas that if we weren't offering health care, we would probably not be allowed. We are getting to reach people who have never heard of Jesus. At the same time, we're getting to use our gifts and talents to help treat people who are sick that otherwise might not have access to health care. Since I began going on global health outreach missions, my faith has grown exponentially. I believe a lot of that is from stepping outside my comfort zone and saying yes and serving when I wasn't sure I could do it, but trusting that the Lord could work through me. I think that GHO mission trips are very effective because we are strategic in our missions. We use or work with national partners who are people in the country and live there and know the culture. They're able to help us get into areas where people need our health care and don't have access to it or into areas of a country where the gospel is not known. And these are the areas that we are hoping to reach people. I also like about GHO that it's very organized, um, that we work with our national partners to do that. We have spiritual preparation beforehand by the team leaders. We have regular devotions and testimonies, as well as praise and worship with our in-country partners while we're on the mission field. And we also have some devotions that help us in follow-up once our team returns to the States and helping us readjust. GHO is working to increase or improve our long-term impact from this short-term medical mission. Some of the ways we are doing this is in enhancing or working with our public health teaching. And we're hoping to even start teaching leaders in churches where we go so that they can be the church for their community and help with some of the health teaching. I am prayerful that you will consider joining us on a Global Health Outreach mission And I ask you to consider this. Could it be that you have been created for such a mission as this? So as I mentioned earlier, there are things that you can't completely predict or prepare for when it comes to mission trips. But all the things that one can anticipate, I think Global Health Outreach and Trish Burgess do a tremendous job in, in putting these trips together. I'm going to do this next section on mission trips with students, and then I'll call time out for any questions or comments that you guys might have. So as I mentioned, I got started on mission trips with students in Jamaica with Dr. Jim Carney. And... Um, this is the clinic that we primarily work in now. We've been to various uh, sites in Jamaica, but the one we work in now is in Treasure Beach, Jamaica. It's the southwest corner, and the building that you see here, the left-hand side that you can't quite make out, that's a fixed dental clinic which has eight chairs in it. And then the right-hand side, that's the sanctuary that we set up. We take the pews out and set up 10 additional portable chairs. So we have about 18 chairs capacity and we would put two students on a chair so we can have 30 or more students on a trip and still plenty of room for everybody. And the Lord has really blessed this ministry. We did our first trip in 2001. And then the two years before COVID, the word kept spreading to more and more dental schools. And the two years before COVID, each year we had over 300 students in Jamaica from the U.S. and Canada and just lots of great aspects to those trips. And we hope to get back to that uh, soon. There are a couple pictures from the inside of the clinic here where the students see patients in, in pairs. And the clinic is called the Helping Hand Clinic. 
And at the end of the week, the students are allowed to trace their hand on the wall somewhere. And the walls are full of, of hands from various schools' students. And then they place the date of their trip on there. And here's one particular student, Darren Liu, who was a student at the University of Oklahoma. And he went on three trips as a student. He came back and led an Oklahoma team. And I'm sure we'll see more of him in the, in the future. And that's just an example of the fact that many come back repeatedly for trips. This next picture is the very first trip that I did to uh, Jamaica up in the mountains where they make the great Blue Mountain coffee. And Jim Carney and I, as I mentioned, were the leaders of this team. And these are students from Oklahoma. And the reason I show this is to let you know a little bit about what's happened with some of these students since that trip in 2001. On the lower right front row there, his name is Chad. He's become an oral surgeon. I think he pulled his first tooth in Jamaica, and he's pulled a whole lot of them since, I'm sure. And then next uh, is Lona and Zach. They are now married with, I think, three kids. And Lona's been back a number of times. We're still trying to get Zach back to Jamaica or somewhere. And then down the line with the uh, chartreuse pants, that's Jessica, and she has become a trip leader. She leads multiple trips every year, and her daughter is in dental school in Iowa right now, looking to carry on, I think. And then uh, Jim Carney, his wife, he and his wife Sue have two daughters who both graduated from dental school, and I think they will carry on as well. So it's neat to see how the Lord provides through these trips people to, to work with the next generation. Here's a team from Virginia Commonwealth University, my alma mater, and also the University of, of Toronto. This is a team from Baylor. Uh, team from Iowa. This is one of the earlier teams from Iowa, and I show you this because... The guy in the back row towards the left-hand side with the green shirt on, his name is Chris. At this time, Chris was an undergrad. He was at Florida State. And we sometimes let undergrads come along, and they basically do sterilization and try to get their feet wet in dentistry a little bit. And Chris had a good time, well, as good a time as you can have working sterilization all week long. Some of you all might have done that. That's a hard road to travel there. But Chris ended up going to the University of Louisville School of Dentistry, And he came back to Jamaica with five of his classmates, and that created a Louisville connection. So we had a Louisville team every year, 20 to 25 Louisville students. And so here's a picture when, let's see, Chris is right about the center of that picture with with his five classmates. And two of his classmates, Mac and Jared, continued on. And this is a picture closest to the front is Mac, and then with his back to us is Jared. And these two went with me to India about two years ago. So you see how it could start in Jamaica, but who knows where it's going to to go from there. This is a team from Howard and VCU. And I mention this because Dr. Reginald Salter on the far right is on faculty at Howard. And he goes with his students on multiple trips each year, very committed to seeing his students progress. And I don't know how you can progress faster in both clinically and spiritually than to spend a week on the, on the mission field. And our clinic in Jamaica, we've actually been able to add a, an endodontic department. So we're able to offer root canals four trips a year. The American Association of Endodontists, AAE, pays the way for an endodontist and two endo residents to join us on four trips a year, which has been a, a great thing when you can preserve teeth that would otherwise have to be removed. This is a team from University of Detroit Mercy, and I mention this for a couple of reasons. First, second row far left, that's Dr. Sonia Tao. She is one of she was my associate for about a decade in my practice back in Yorktown, Virginia. 
And then she is one of two that bought the practice, so I was her associate for a couple of years. And this is her alma mater, University of Detroit Mercy. So she doesn't do a lot of trips, but she enjoyed that one, and I think she'll be back again. In the front row here, the guy with the long sleeve blue shirt, his name is Manon. And Manon lived in the Detroit area. He had been accepted to medical school, but he turned them down because he has a real heart for the gospel, and he decided dentistry is a better way to communicate the gospel than medicine. I'm not saying he's right, wrong, whatever. It's all good, okay? But at least on the mission field, you can do something definitively for patients in dentistry that you can't always do in medicine. You know, you pull that painful tooth, they have gotten immediate relief from that problem. If they've got high blood pressure, you give them medication, what happens when the medication runs out? So if there are any physicians in the room, I'm not trying to diss you, okay? I'm just saying that dentistry has certain advantages in this regard. And Manon is now in dental school in, uh, in Arizona. His wife is a physician. We'll see how that works out. And then on the far right is a guy named Mike. Uh, he is on faculty at Detroit Mercy. He also goes on a number of trips with, with students from that school as well. Okay. When it comes to student trips, I'll speak about blessings of those trips, challenges of those trips, and then also a little bit of what I did regarding a devotional plan for those trips. So first of all, and then I'm going to open it up for you all to give me some feedback here. Some of the blessings, and I'll speak of blessings both for the doctors who are overseeing the trips and also the students who are on the trips. If you're overseeing a student trip, what an opportunity to sow into the next generation. Not just clinically, although it's a huge opportunity clinically to, to give them trip, tic, uh, tricks and techniques that can help advance their skills, but also to help them to see the integration of faith and practice that can make the practice more worthwhile for them and more valuable for their patients. And for the students, wow, they will quite often say that they have an opportunity to remove more teeth in a week in Jamaica than they do in four years of dental school. The clinical experience is tremendous. The opportunity to learn from other students, sometimes students from other schools and share experiences, the friendships that develop, and uh, they're all just, just great opportunities that occur on the mission field. There are some, uh, let, me, let me mention one more advantage for the dentists that oversee the trips. As I mentioned, dental mission trips can be quite grueling, quite physically demanding. But it's possible as a dentist goes farther in their career, maybe we're not quite as able to see patients all day long and, and the, the tediousness of that. But it's less physically demanding to oversee students and only have to jump in occasionally. So it can effectively extend our career in missionary dentistry if we're overseeing other students rather than doing all the treatment ourselves. Okay, a couple of the challenges. From the, from the overseeing dentist standpoint, one of the challenges that, is that students are all at a different point. Maybe they've all received two or three years of education uh, in the classroom, but clinically some are going to develop faster than others. Some might have a dental background and some might not. So you'll see students all over the map in terms of their abilities when they get there, and you have to try to be conscious of who's where. And in keeping with that, the people overseeing the trip, the docs overseeing the trip, have to be conscious of two goals. You want the students to advance in their skills, but you also want the patients treated well. Can you see how those two can collide at times? So you're thinking, well, it's been 45 minutes, maybe I should jump in. But they're using good technique, it seems like they're getting there, and maybe I'll give them a while longer. 
and you're trying to balance out the needs of the student with the needs of the patient. And I believe certainly that the needs of the patient need to come first, but that's sort of a give and take, and it, it takes some discretion as to when to jump in because some are more likely to ask for help than others. So also, I'll just mention briefly um, the devotional plan that I've used. These trips that I have done to Jamaica involve both Christians and non-Christians, and we're glad for all of them, people of various faiths. And so what we do devotionally is each morning we have about 15 or 20 minutes of devotions, and it's not until Wednesday morning that I really get into the heart of the gospel. And I do my best to communicate faith and works and the gospel. And, and uh, so Wednesday morning, as we uh, finish up devotions, I give them an assignment. I ask them to respond anonymously in writing to this question, do you believe the gospel, this thing that I've just tried to present? And by the way, it's a little awesome to be called to communicate the gospel in 15 or 20 minutes when it's Genesis to Revelation. But you do what you can to hit the distinctives and pray that God blesses it. So I ask them to answer in one of two ways. If they believe, why do they believe the gospel? What are some of the compelling reasons that have caused them to believe? And if they don't believe the gospel, why not? What primary objections cause you to reject the gospel? So I let them know, I hand out blank pieces of paper, Actually, we have blank pieces of paper on their devotional handouts at the beginning of the week, and I let them know that that's their meal ticket for Thursday morning. And, and they all fill it out, I mean, not just because they want breakfast, but because it's anonymous, it gives them a chance to speak to their hearts. And I finally find out what they've been thinking as they've been through devotions all week long. And then sometime Thursday, I look, at, look through them and sort them out and see how they might fit together. And then Friday morning's devotional session is me reading some of their answers. And this is the devotional session where they pay the most attention because they're about to hear from either their thoughts or their classmates' thoughts. And what's really beautiful here is at times when one person's reasons for not believing correspond to somebody else's reasons for believing. Can you envision how that might happen? I can think of one case in particular where somebody says, I I just can't believe in God because of all the, the pain and the suffering in the world. It's a legitimate concern that a lot of people hold. And then somebody else says, I came to faith because watching of watching how my mother suffered and how faith held her up. So the same types of problems can inspire faith in one person and at least temporarily drive someone else away. And so they're not hearing it from me, they're hearing it from their classmates. And so that's a, a dynamic time that, that I think, uh, I, I pray, has a, a good effect on the the students that come. And I'll just read a couple of excerpts that I've gotten from students over the years. I love getting to start my day focused on the Lord and get a week away from the rest of my busy world to contemplate Him and have my faith strengthened and replenished. I'm thankful for this trip and I would love to return next year and do it again. I would also like to love to lead a trip like this after graduation. The seed gets planted and they want to come back and bless others also. The element of the trip that was most meaningful to me was the realization that my faith could be incorporated into my career. Hallelujah. He didn't say hallelujah, I did. I had always viewed dentistry as its own secular entity and never understood how it could be intertwined until seeing it in action during this trip. I've heard others say the same thing. It doesn't have to be a mission trip. 
But it's almost like a light bulb goes on when you find out you can be more than a great doctor. You can deal with more than the physical. And sometimes this happens on on mission trips. Oh, let me tell you, the guy that wrote this, he was a part of a Bible study at his dental school, but he hadn't yet come to fully embrace the faith. And I had a chance to interact with one of the guys that led the Bible study and sowed, I'm sure, countless hours into this guy's life. And then it was on the mission field, hearing some of the same truths espoused by somebody entirely different that the Lord used to finally, can I say flip the switch? I mean, that's, that's when he finally, it finally resonated with him. And he, shortly thereafter, he was baptized and then he started his own Bible study for students. It was beautiful to see. And isn't it great how God uses the corporate witness of his people to draw people to himself? Every parent wants their child to hear the gospel from someone besides them so they can see it's not just their idea. And the Lord used his fellow Dell student that sowed a whole lot into his life and then one week in Jamaica to, to bring him to faith. <laughs> just quickly, I got one other eval on that trip that I didn't put in writing. And the guy said, it was a great trip, but we could have done without devotions. And so, you know, don't be shocked if some, if the gospel resonates with some and, and not with others. And in fact, we know that if the gospel is appropriately presented, there needs to be an offense in there. There needs to be something that, that rubs them in the direction of seeing their need for a savior. So our goal is not to get rid of the entire offense of the gospel. It's to make sure we are not the offensive part of it. So let's let's all try not to let that deter us here. Okay, based on all my research on this topic, I can say with certainty that my belief in the gospel is not simply a blind faith, but is the most logical and reasonable belief available to mankind. This was a student from Marquette who was hoping to go on to be an oral surgeon, and I think he's probably going to make it. He's a very sharp guy. And I, I say this, I, I quote this, because I think it's critical for us to realize in the whole science, faith, uh, controversy or whatever, that there is tremendous empirical evidence for what we believe in the gospel. Lots of things in terms of the, the legitimacy of the scriptures, the, the passing along of, of the various translations, the testimony of the witnesses, most of whom were martyred for their faith. Lots of areas we can go to that show the empirical evidence for the truth of the gospel. But when someone comes to faith, it gives them a profound uh, connection with God that goes beyond the empirical. And, and can you think of a disciple that, that in whose life that was most clear, clearly illustrated? Huh? Thomas. Thomas, exactly. And usually one of our devotional sessions will be on Thomas. And you remember Thomas, he didn't believe at first that Jesus had risen. And then the next time Jesus appears to the disciples, Thomas is there. And Jesus offers Thomas that empirical evidence. And what's his response? My Lord and my God. So we have no reason to be afraid of the empirical evidence, but that evidence, if we or someone else comes to Christ, will lead us to truths, more powerful truths than we can ever learn empirically that will govern our lives and will then give us a framework from which to interpret empirical evidence. This science and faith thing is not a problem for the Christian, okay? There's general revelation, there's special revelation. All truth is from God. It's a problem for the person who denies God. That's probably a rabbit trail, but 
You guys got me started. Okay, let me stop right there and, and ask any thoughts, any comments about anything so far. We're about halfway through and we're not on time. But anyway, any thoughts at all or comments, questions? Bill. Um, I mean, you mentioned this, the devotional plan for the students. Uh, but I often find that the, the biggest benefit of these trips is this, what it's going to do for the spiritual development growth of, of the participants. How much weight or how much energy do you put pre-trip in terms of preparation? Uh, so either, well, we know there would be a lot of logistical preparation, but spiritual preparation as to getting them ready for about what they're about to experience. In the I would love to do more, and here's a dilemma. The group I've done those trips through is the Christian Dental Society, which does not have any domestic presence. All they do is international trips. So we don't have a relationship with these students in advance. My hope, as you know, is to do these trips in the future through CMDA, and we've worked out an arrangement to do that. So we'll have a student chapter at a school, and we can feed into their lives and give them some thoughts in advance of the trip. So I think that's a great thing that hopefully we can accomplish once COVID is behind us. Yeah, I think that's key. And actually, Dr. Burgess mentioned in the short video I played that not only before the trip, but even after the trip, GHO has provision for uh, team members to uh, reconsider the information and integrate that into their lives after the trip as well. Good. How many of you all have done student trips, either as students or as overseeing students? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Several of you. Okay. Great. Good opportunity. Okay, let's move now into remote third world teaching trips. And what I mean by that is there are two organizations, both of whom are present at this conference, who will take dentists to remote third world areas and teach Christians how to remove teeth in a week. And these are not dental students. If you're lucky, they speak English. If you're lucky, they have a little bit of medical background but sometimes neither of those things is true. And in six days, you hope to teach them what it's taken us four years to learn. And it's, it's crazy. Uh, let me admit that from the start. My first trip was 2009 to Nigeria. And I was one of five dentists that went to train 16 Nigerian Christians. And by the way, this training is always done as a means for them to communicate the gospel. It's always gospel-centered. I mean, they're going to charge an average of about $2 per extraction to cover their cost of materials and maybe keep them going a little bit. But uh, it's always gospel-centered. And after that first trip to Nigeria in 2009, I came home and I said, this is crazy, no way, never again. And then a few years later, I was at this very conference and I heard a guy named Caleb from India speak as part of a presentation by, by Dr. Charlie Vitito. And Caleb had been trained and had done very well with the training, and he had taught others to extract teeth. And I thought, son of a gun, it works. <laughs> and not every student is able to be approved to continue extracting teeth for the sake of the gospel. An average of maybe half of the students are successful, but that showed me that, that God works through that. And it just kind of hit me that no matter how fast I work over the course of a week, if I'm doing all the treatment, I'm not going to do nearly as much as one student who's trained who does that for their whole career. So I, I see it as a, as a very challenging but potentially very uh, gospel-promoting way to provide uh, dental instruction. The two groups, I'll give you information on them later, are ITEC 
and Empower, and you'll have contact information shortly about that. Just a few slides about the trips here. So why do we do these trips? Here's a woman in Kenya, uh, terrible infection, uh, upper right. Um, here's a 16-year-old boy from Nigeria, that first trip I did. It's uh, number 19, bad decay, and it's draining out of his mandible here. And people in remote third world areas die of dental infections. And others, the pain causes them to rather be dead. And yet the thing about it is, these are normally not the toughest extractions in the world. Because you all know when there's that kind of infection, what happens? The bone deteriorates. There's not much holding the teeth in. And it might be tough to get them numb, but let me tell you, they will tolerate a little discomfort to get that tooth out of there. And in fact, this tooth here was removed by a student in, in, in Uganda. It's, it's not that tough an extraction if they have at least some semblance of knowledge of what they're doing. So what we do during the course of the week, Monday is a, uh, in the classroom training day. This was Nigeria. And we show them what we can about tooth numbering and uh, how many roots each of the teeth have and what instruments might work best to remove those teeth. Do what we can. And then Monday evening is probably the most challenging part of the week. That's when they give injections on each other. And as you might imagine, it's a little scary because each person that opens their mouth realizes the person giving the injection has never done this before. We remind them of that verse, how it's better to give than receive, and they know what we're saying. <laughs> but uh, if they make it through Monday night, they, then on Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, they are able to begin giving injections and actually removing teeth. And we certainly watch them closely, but we try not to jump in unless absolutely necessary. We let them struggle through as long as they're not doing anything that might be potentially dangerous for the patient. Sometimes we'll let them practice injections on uh, oranges and learn how to... to um, to give those properly. Various things we're talking about during the week. Um, this was in India almost two years ago. A female dentist named Lydia, who is actually here from Louisville, from here in Louisville, that, that helped us with the instructions here. This is a five-rooted upper molar. And uh, you know that upper molars normally have about three roots, sometimes four. I have seen two five-rooted upper molars in my career, and this one was removed by somebody on their, I think, their third day <laughs> ever doing anything dentally related. So um, this is beautiful to me. I mean, maybe some of y'all don't think so, but this is, this is a thing of beauty here. <laughs> so we have little graduation ceremonies at the end of the week. And again, only about half of the students remove enough teeth and show enough competence to be allowed to continue in that treatment. But this is the group that graduated. The far left guy... Peter, he went through the training years ago, and he came back to train others. In the middle, Linda Webster, she was on the exhibit floor Thursday night. She's the CEO of Empower, one of the two groups that does this. The far right, that's Dr. Bob Meyer, the executive director of the Christian Dental Society. And then this is a team from iTech, another group that does the training. Far left is John Spen, and next to him... Uh, is Craig Hunter. They are the two dentists that primarily work with iTech. In the front right is Edith. She is a real-life dentist from Kenya who sometimes joins us for trips. Okay, let's consider a little bit about international gospel opportunities back home. 
And some of you may have heard that CMDA has created a video series to equip Christian healthcare professionals to communicate spiritually with their patients. And we will have a total of 25 videos when the series is complete. And I just want to play a short section of a video that helps us to provide treatment to refugees and immigrants in this country. And it's the leaders of the episode are Andrew and Esther who work in a clinic And they didn't want their last name used because they may end up in the mission field at some point in time. But I'll just play you about four minutes of this, both to get a feel for the Faith Prescription series, which, as I said, deals with 25 different topics, and also to maybe have better appreciation of what they've learned regarding treating refugees and immigrants that come to our country. Let's see if I can get this to play here. refugees and other immigrants becoming a part of our society? How can we effectively share the love of Christ through health care for our international friends? Let's join Drs. Esther and Andrew, who treat patients from many nations in their clinic daily, for this segment of Faith Prescriptions. My name is Esther, and I'm a primary care physician working in a clinic that primarily serves the refugees and immigrants. My name is Andrew. I'm also a primary care physician, and I work in the same clinic as Esther. We work together, and we help co-found this clinic. Our command is that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. The Bible has many passages that talk specifically about caring for the sojourner or foreigner in our midst, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And essentially it says we need to seek justice for the sojourner in our midst, we need to show hospitality, and we need to love them. And this is clear throughout Scripture. A final point, though, is that the Bible also says that we are sojourners on earth, that our true home is in heaven, in the kingdom of God. And therefore, I really believe that when we love the sojourner in our midst, we testify to, we witness to how much God loves us. Leviticus 19 and Exodus 12, these scriptures command us to love the sojourner as ourselves because God's people were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 14 talks about how we should provide for the sojourner from our tithe as we provide for the Levites. And it's important because it says God will bless us when we provide for the sojourner in our midst. Deuteronomy 27 specifically says we shall not withhold justice from the foreigner. And it's so important that it even says that cursed be anyone that does. Hebrews 13 specifically says we must show hospitality to the stranger in our midst. And that when we do that, it's possible we're even entertaining angels. 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2 both reference the fact that we are sojourners on earth. And that our true home is in heaven. Peter once this says that we were once not a people, but we are now God's people. And Philippians 3.20 also reminds us that our true citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. And even Jesus knew what it was like to be a refugee, because when he was a child, Mary and Joseph had to flee King Herod to seek refuge in Egypt. So care for a refugee has his own challenges. 
three of the most common challenges we face um, caring for refugees ourselves are the language barrier, that many of our refugee friends don't speak the language that we speak, and many of them speak languages that don't have translation available here in the U.S. for them. There are also barriers such as complex medical health as well as mental health needs. In addition to that, many of them have a mistrust for government or any entity that is providing healthcare for them, whether it's from their country or in our country currently. For providers who are wanting to begin caring for refugees and immigrants in their clinic, it may be daunting to think about what that would look like and where to begin. And it's simple. Seek to understand. Find out who your patients are. Ask them what their name is. How do you pronounce their first name? Where are they from? Learn a few words in their language and greet them. For example, we have patients that are here from the Congo, and they speak Swahili, and we'll just greet them Jumbo. Or Arabic, you say Merhaba, and just welcome them. Even just a few words in their language will ease them when they're entering into a very sterile environment. I wish I could play more of this for you. Uh, I've asked Kara to hand out a brochure on faith prescriptions in case any of y'all would like to see more of that series. It's available online through the CMDA Online Learning Center. And right now, only the first 10 videos are available. The other 15 are in various stages of, of getting ready. Okay, just in closing up now, how mission trips can affect private practice. Many of us, I think, are not full-time missionaries, but we're going to go occasionally and then come back to wherever we practice. And these mission trips can have a profound effect on our interaction with patients back home as well. So I'll speak to how the trips can influence our relationship with staff and also relationships with our patients. So first of all, with staff, I've had about six of my staff members go with me on trips over the years, which has been a blast. Uh, in, in lots of different levels. And then also, when they don't go, they're praying for me. Often my staff are helping to order the supplies we'll need, packing duffel bags, whatever it might be, so they play a, a role in that as well. And, um, <laughs> and sometimes I'll be able to send them updates, prayer updates as to how things are going. And then when I get back, they would always tell me how well things went in my absence. <laughs> you know, cats away, mice will play. You really wonder about that, but based on them, they say everything goes fine when I'm not there. And uh, so that's a good opportunity to talk to the staff. I've never been inclined to, to have only Christian staff members. Some of those are non-Christians, and I have a chance to talk with them about how the Lord worked on those trips. With patients also, I'd like to get us to think about when they ask us, so how was that last trip or whatever it might be, there are different ways we can respond because trips include all kinds of experiences that we might choose to share. But I would encourage you to see that as an open door to talk about how you saw God at work, whatever it might be. Maybe somebody came to Christ or maybe somebody grew in Christ or maybe there's a tooth you just couldn't get out and then you prayed and then somehow you were able to get it out. Whatever it might be to point to God's work, to, to let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and think you're really great. No, glorify God who is in heaven. That's, I, I think we should be thinking along those lines when people ask us those mission trip-related questions. So I'll mention also, with respect to the practice that I used to practice in and used to own, I didn't want to try to use the mission trips as a way to grow my practice. That's just me, you know, my thoughts. But 
but I did want them to perhaps play a role in pointing people towards spiritual conversation. So a couple things that I did. First of all, I did have two pictures, two posters in the waiting room framed. This one was in the waiting room. It's a uh, verse from First Chronicles, and this is where it was in the corner of the waiting room there. And a second one from a trip to Nigeria, and that was in a hallway that led them to the treatment area. And that would sometimes stimulate conversations. And then also somebody suggested to me once, which I did, is to write up a mission trip journal that was in the waiting room along with magazines that they might read. So ways to get people thinking along those lines. In closing up, I just want to point to a few individuals who have played a key role either in my participation in trips or my attitude towards trips. First, got to be Dr. Jim Carney, a wonderful guy who's being treated for some serious uh, uh, problem up in uh, in Rochester at the Mayo Clinic right now. Um, but he's a, a real brother in Christ and has done amazing things for the Jamaica people, both himself and through facilitating the trips with others. Second is a guy named Dr. Bob Meyer, Executive Director of the Christian Dental Society. And Bob, more than anybody I know, will do anything for anyone if it will help dentistry to proclaim the gospel. Extremely knowledgeable guy. He's been to probably at least 30 or 40 different countries and just always ready to go. He's always responding to texts within like three minutes or less. And he just, he lives for the opportunity to play, play a role in mission trips. Third, Dr. Trish Burgess. I've never done a trip with her, but I see her love for trips that compels her to deal with all the behind-the-scenes stuff that most of us don't want to mess with so that others can go on trips. And she goes on them as well. But her love for what God can do through mission trips extends to make it more possible for others. Fourth, Dr. Charlie Vitito. He's here in in, uh, Louisville, and he started Empower, one of the two groups that does these teaching trips. I've worked with him twice, and I have great admiration for all that he has done to make this possible for dentists to be involved, and even more so for Christians to be trained around the world to provide treatment in the name of Christ. And then finally, Jamie Saint. He is now the uh, uh, CEO or executive director of uh, ITEC, and His father, Steve Saint, was the one who first had the idea of providing dental skills to remote third world people so they can share the gospel with their countrymen. So finally, I promised you a slide on resources, and here it is. These are uh, the sources that I mentioned that can help us in our planning for future questions. Let me go ahead and close us in prayer, and then I'm happy to stick around if you guys want to talk some more. So let's, let's pray. Father, how I thank you that we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you've prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those good works are going to look differently for each one of us. But I pray, Father, that today we've perhaps considered uh, what your plan for each of our lives might be, how we can serve the least of these, and uh, how we pray, Father, that it wouldn't be just our efforts, but that we'd recognize our abilities as from you and that you would bless them to grow your kingdom. So thank you for the privilege of being your ambassadors in dentistry. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Thank you all for getting up early. Thanks for being here.